Regenerative Medicine today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast Dr. Michael Moto. Dr. Moto is an associate professor in the Department of Radiology at the University of Pittsburgh and a member of the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine. Dr. Moto, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Thank you. So I know that your interest in your focus area in terms of your research is in terms of the brain with a lot of emphasis on stroke and stroke therapy. Can you briefly give us a, an overview of your interest in your focus areas? Yes, so my interest is stroke, and the reason for that is really its predominance in society. It's the main cause of adult disability. About 800,000 people in the U.S. alone suffer a stroke every year. I'm sure everyone is aware of at least one member of their family that had a stroke. It's an extremely disabling condition. Many people become paralyzed on one side. They can't move their arm. They have speech disability. It's a very crippling disease where people need a lot of attention and help. And what we're really trying to do is provide a better therapy. At present, there is essentially no therapy available for stroke. So we're really trying to develop something that would improve the outcome and allow people to basically use their arm again or regain some of their ability to comprehend or produce speech. So I know that you just recently published on some of your work involving neural stem cells. Perhaps the way to start this discussion is to maybe introduce the synopsis of that work. Neural stem cells are the cells that, during development, produce the brain. So they produce almost all the cells that we find in the brain, a part of cells that produce blood vessels or immune cells, but all other brain cells really come from neural stem cells. So this makes these cells a really interesting vehicle for therapy, trying to replace the cells that have been lost due to trauma such as stroke. The other interest really is that these cells, as they're developing, they secrete growth factors, chemicals, that produce plasticity in the brain. So even if they don't replace the cells, they produce chemical factors that allow the brain to work better. And what we have been involved in here is to put some of these cells into the brains in animal models that are mimicking the human conditions of stroke. And that approach has been very successful in these animal models. And more recently, last year, these types of human neural stem cells, they have moved forward into the clinic in patients with stroke, and about 12 patients have now been transplanted with these cells, and so far no ill effects have been observed with these. So I know in the course of a clinical study, the first step is safety, and then of course then is look at the effectiveness of the new therapy. So do I gather from what you just said this is a phase one study? That's right. So it's a phase one study with an escalating dose, and uh, the cells belong to a company called Reneuron, who are based in the UK, and the clinical trial is run out of Glasgow. As the dose is increased, it will be more likely that it will also be at a dose that is therapeutically relevant. So eventually this phase one will move into a phase two trial, then we'll test more specifically efficaciousness of the therapy in human patients with stroke. And I must stress these are ischemic strokes, so meaning 
situations where a blood vessel has been occluded rather than a blood vessel having burst and blood basically going out. So these are called hemorrhagic strokes. So is the phase one study complete or is it still ongoing? It's still ongoing, but interim results have been reported at the International Stem Cell Society meeting this year. With, I assume, positive results. As you were indicating, it's a safety study. So all data that is currently available is indicating that it's a safe therapy, but it's not been powered or designed in terms of determining efficacy. So I know your studies are broader than this one particular trial. Are there some other significant aspects of your research that we should share with our audience? The transplantation of these neural stem cells as such into the brain is a first step really in terms of moving these cell therapies forward. But I think there's a longer term aim here is really in terms of tissue that has been being lost in these conditions. In these situations, we really need to start to think a bit more about a more holistic approach that involves biomaterials, but also potentially multiple types of cells. So not just the cells replacing the brain cells, but these brain cells also need some food. And to get the food to them, you actually need to also reconstruct or reproduce some of the blood vessels that have been lost as well due to the stroke. So we need to think in that context in terms of tissue engineering inside the brain, similar to other organs such as the liver or the heart. But the brain is obviously a little bit more difficult due to the presence of the skull that limits access considerably compared to other organs such as the liver. So in terms of this uh, approach that you have, Is there a critical time in terms of when these therapies would be optimally applied? This is a very good question, and it's a question that mostly remains unaddressed. So certain cells, such as bone marrow cells in stroke, they thought to mainly exert a positive effect during the acute phase of the stroke. So as soon as it happens, to say probably about a week or two weeks afterwards, And the thought is there that mainly the way they act is through neuroprotection, so that they're preserving the degenerating cells inside the brain, whereas the approach that we're taking in terms of the neural stem cells, aiming to replace some of the cells that have been lost, it's thought that that might be more amenable to subchronic or chronic conditions of stroke, where basically the damage has completed. And what we're now trying to do is basically revert the tissue that has been lost or the cells that have been lost. So it's different approaches depending on what cells one wants to use. So I know that you rely heavily on imaging in the course of your research. The old saying is a picture's worth a thousand words. Perhaps you could share a little bit of your expertise and insight into that particular aspect of the studies. There is essentially three components to the imaging. The first component is really that we want to know, did the patient have a stroke and where did it happen inside the brain? And the reason that is important is because if we want to target this therapy to the area of the stroke, we need to know where it is. So again, this is slightly different to other organ systems where you can easily see where the damage is. In the brain, due to the skull, we can't really easily see inside. So we need to have non-invasive imaging techniques such as MRI or positron emission tomography, PET imaging. These techniques really allow us to see where the damage is. 
and it allows us to target these areas in terms of the therapy. The second aspect is really in terms of the monitoring of the therapy. So did we place it in the right place and did it spread out from where we put it? And the final aspect is really in terms of being able to follow what happens to the cells or the biomaterials that we injected over time. So do they migrate the cells or do they stay put where we injected them? Does the biomaterial, does it degrade over time? And the final aspect is really in terms of being able to establish if we, for instance, reconstructed an area of the brain. So an area of the brain that previously has been lost has a particular signature on the MRI scan. And if we've completed our therapy, the question will be that we now kind of like completely replace it. And the only way you can really address that is using non-invasive imaging so that you can see what the damage was before the therapy. You see the therapy as it is put into place, and then you see how the therapy eventually basically reconstructs or replaces the area that has been damaged. And no other technique really can adequately demonstrate these different steps that we're really interested in in terms of regenerative medicine inside the brain. So your description reminds me to ask the question, do you attempt to place these cells at the damaged area as opposed to just injecting them into the brain per se? Yeah, so this is another question that initially with animal cells going into the brains of animals, we used to see a lot of migration. And in that sense, we could put cells in the opposite hemisphere and they would migrate to the area where the damage was. With the human cells in the animal brain, we don't see that so much. So we see a local diffusion of the cells, but we don't see this widespread migration of the cells to a particular area that has been damaged. So this makes it more important in terms of specifically targeting a particular area where these cells can basically secrete their factors or where they can replace the cells that have been lost. So the site of injection starts to become much more important. And what we've recently demonstrated as well is that the size or the structure that has been affected by the stroke, the topology, if you want, of the stroke, is an important factor in terms of mediating how much of the recovery that we're observing after the injection of the cells. And some of this makes sense. If you think the the brain is a highly organized and specialized organ, so if you have damage to a particular area, you lose particular functions, be it the arm or the leg not working. So in terms of trying to restore those kind of functions, you also need to think that that needs to be somewhat a localized target that we're trying to replace or trying to modify using our cells. So all the data is starting to converge in that area. So you described a moment ago the the use of imaging to assess the rebuilding of a sector of the brain. And early on in this discussion, you spoke about the fact that someone has a stroke, for example, they have lost use of an arm and so forth. Is there a, shall I say, a one-to-one correlation between what you see in an MRI and what there is in terms of behavioral outcomes, such as the ability to move an arm after a stroke? Although, generally speaking, that is the case, that we can say that you have damage to a particular area in the brain, it probably will lead to this and this kind of dysfunction. 
if we're looking at specifically, there is still a disconnect in terms of what we're seeing on images and the anatomy that has been damaged and the functional readout. So what that means is that just by looking at an MRI scan, we probably cannot predict specifically which functions have been lost. We can generally say if there is damage to, say, the motor cortex in this and this region, it's likely that there will be a paralysis of the arm. But you still always need that behavioral readout or report from the patient in terms of the symptom. And then you're linking those kind of changes with the changes that you're seeing on the anatomical images. But at the moment, it's not reliably possible to specifically predict what functions have been lost just purely based on anatomical images. So we're not that far yet in terms of the imaging. Yet at the same time, without the imaging, we're completely missing that kind of information. So it's really the two of them that need to synergistically work together for us to understand better in terms of what's really happening. Dr. Moto, in addition to your interest in stroke and repair of damage caused by stroke, I believe some of your other interests include Huntington's, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's disease. Can you share a little bit of your activities in that area, please? Similar to what we're doing in stroke, the the basic interest is really linking anatomical changes with behavioral changes with an eye to eventually use therapy in terms of changing these anatomical changes so that we get a behavioral recovery. And the same applies to other diseases such as Parkinson's disease and Huntington's disease. For instance, in Parkinson's disease, we've established that areas outside of the traditional focus area of Parkinson's disease, which is the striatal nigral degeneration, are important in terms of the behavioral symptoms that, in this case, our animals experience. But the same is true in terms of humans. So imaging plays a crucial role here because we're able to see slowly changing anatomical features and how they relate to behavior. So that's the way how we can link uh, anatomical changes that happen over a long period of time with behavioral changes gradually happening as well. So these are kind of information that we can't easily get from histopathological assessments that would happen very late in the day. And this is important in terms of therapeutic interventions. So it's a question in terms of, is it a gradual degeneration of one area leading to another? And that would mean that potentially if you're trying to contain the degeneration within a single structure or at an early stage, you might be able to prevent a further worsening of the condition. For instance, in Parkinson's disease, there's a lot of thought now that maybe the disease starts peripherally in the gut and then gradually enters the enteric and the peripheral nervous system, possibly even 20 years before you actually see behavioral symptoms linked to the degeneration in the brain. So if one were to be able to contain the disease at that stage, we might never actually see the symptoms that are due to the degeneration of the brain. But the only way to be able to do that is, for instance, to have reliable imaging techniques that would detect the disease prior to any clear symptoms being evident to the patient. So you speak of imaging again, and I believe the state of the art in imaging in terms of resolution continues to improve. From a lay perspective, what is the state of the art for imaging of the brain in terms of resolution or the like? It really depends on the imaging modalities. 
MRI is very good in terms of anatomical detail, as is CT imaging. MRI currently clinically is at a resolution of about 2 millimeters. Preclinically, a standard scan would be in the dimension of 100 micrometers. But for instance, recently we've done a study using diffusion tensor imaging where you can see fiber tracks, and we've been able to push that to 2 nanoliter volume. So this is 100 micrometer by 100 micrometer by 200 micrometer in volume. So really almost at the resolution of where we can see maybe 10 cells within an imaging volume. So it's really gradually pushing the limits and improving the resolution, but also the type of information that we're seeing on the scans. In contrast, PET imaging, the resolution has not that dramatically improved, but the improvement has really been in terms of the specificity of the ligands and the variety of the ligands that have been made available. So the molecular information that we can now get from PET has greatly improved. And that's one way of looking at all this imaging, is no longer looking at an individual imaging technique in its own right, but looking at it in terms of the context of multimodal imaging. That one imaging modality, such as PAT, might be able to be very reliably and easily informed about different molecules, whereas another technique, such as MRI or CT, would provide a high anatomical map or detail onto which the molecular imaging information could be laid over. And for instance, at Pitt now, it's one of the first MRI-PET combined system that is now going into use. So this will be very useful in terms of very quickly diagnosing patients with stroke, but also in terms of information about cancer patients. So not just localizing the cancer, but also, for instance, providing a molecular phenotype in terms of what kind of specific molecules are present in that tumor and could provide a target in terms of specific molecular therapy. Very interesting and certainly very, very costly, but high-powered capabilities that you just described. Dr. Moto, we appreciate you uh, sharing your science and your interest in terms of these various afflictions of the brain. Perhaps in terms of many of our listeners that are interested in what's available in the near future as opposed to the basic science that you continue to pursue as well. You described early on in this discussion the clinical trial of phase one safety assessment. Can you briefly give us a timeline on when the phase two study might begin if the phase one continues to be successful? I think timelines in these areas are always very difficult to get because it's entirely new, so there's a lot of hiccups on the way or things take longer than one would expect, and often they take a completely different directions. I think the good thing now is that a path to the clinic has well been established for cell therapy. There's a lot of different cell therapies being tested now, especially bone marrow cells. There's a lot of clinical trials going on. Typically, the phase one is the essential component in terms of making sure it's safe. But once the phase one is completed, it's a question in terms of reviewing the data, establishing a protocol for a new phase two trial, plus getting all the permissions in terms of moving that forward. Typically, these things are on the scale of years rather than months. So it's extremely slow process. 
and one has to bear in mind that in terms of the general public, these therapies will only become available after a phase three trial has been completed. So this is an extremely lengthy process that might still take five years and plus. And obviously this is assuming all goes well. That's the answer I expected, but I thought it was important to share it with the listeners. So Dr. Moto, we appreciate you joining us today. Thank you for sharing your program and your accomplishments. We will post on the podcast website a link to Dr. Moto's webpage. And as we conclude this podcast, I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine for who sponsors this podcast series. We welcome suggestions at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And until we meet again with another interesting interview, thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.